So last week I said that if you have a God that's uh, small enough to understand, you're not going to have a God that's big enough to worship. And uh, just so you know, I, I didn't invent that quote. That, that was somebody else's. But you, sh- you should know. I, I felt guilty after last week, like I didn't t- you know, give credit. That was not my thought. If I ever say anything incredibly wise, it probably came from somebody else. Um, but, but it's true. Uh, if, if we have a God that we have to bring down to our level in order to, to wrap our understanding around him, then, then we're going to remake God into something that's really not worthy of worship. Um, last week, we, we talked about the fact that, you know, we, we have this God that's, in many ways, just beyond our comprehension, that, that he is creator, we are created, that he is holy, righteous, and perfect, and we are fallen and broken, and, 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 and naturally, there's going to be things about him that we're not going to understand. We talk about the Trinity, that he's one and yet three, right? We talked about the, the, how, Jesus, that he's fully God, and, he, and he's fully man, and how do we understand that? Last week we talk about this, the, the fact that in our salvation, what we see is that, that God is sovereign over our salvation, and yet we have a human responsibility towards God. And, and, and these are difficult things to wrap our minds around. And, and so God is hard to understand. But that doesn't mean that God's not knowable. Right? It doesn't mean that we can't know God. In fact, Paul in Romans 1 says to us, says to us that, that, that God has clearly made himself known through the things that have been made so that we are without excuse. He's knowable. He, he has communicated to, to, to people throughout the centuries who have written down, and it has become scripture, it has become the word of God communicated to us. We have his written word revealing himself to us. And, and more than that, we have Christ. We have the Son of God who took on flesh, who, who is the representation of God the Father, who comes and he says, if you want to know the Father, look at me. He's communicated who he is to us. He's knowable to us. Though we can't completely wrap our minds around him, we can know him. So Paul, last week, he he begins with this, this, this song of praise to begin this letter to the Ephesians, praising God for this, this wonderful, wonderful salvation that he has wrought for us. And he's going to continue today by, by transitioning into an intercessory prayer, praying on the behalf of the Ephesian church and and I think ultimately on our behalf, that the eyes of our hearts would be opened to who God is, especially in Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see this morning is, is if the Spirit would open our eyes to see him, we will see Christ resurrected, we'll see Christ enthroned, we'll see Christ victorious, and we'll see Christ as our head. Uh, there's a story uh, told back in, in the Old Testament book of Second Kings of how the Syrian army uh, was waging war against the northern kingdom of Israel, and uh, for some reason, their plans just kept being thwarted. Um, Israel was, was one step ahead of them at every turn, and, uh, and so the Syrian king thought that he had a traitor in his midst, and so he begins to question um, his leaders, and, and their response is, well, no, they have a, they have a prophet. They, there's a guy, Elisha, that, that Israel has, there's this guy that he, he can tell you like the secret that you whisper in your bedroom. Like he, he's that powerful of God. And so the Syrian king decides, that, well, he's, gonna, he's going to wipe Elijah, or Elisha out. And so he, he sends his army to surround the town that Elisha lives in. And uh, Elisha's servant goes out one morning and he looks up and he sees the whole Syrian army just, just all the way around him. And he, and he panics. And he goes and he tells Elisha. And, and Elisha says this in 2 Kings 6, 16 and 17. He said, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 
Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You know, the reality is, is there's another reality. There is a spiritual reality that we can't see, taste, touch, or hear most of the time. And so Elisha prays that God would open his servant's physical eyes to see a spiritual reality. Now, what Paul is praying for the Ephesians and and for us is that the spiritual eyes of our heart would be opened to see the spiritual reality of who God is. That, That somehow we would have an experiential knowledge of Christ that we have not seen yet. And that based on this deep, profound, experiential knowledge of who Christ is, it would radically change how we live. That if we will see Christ as resurrected, if we will see Christ enthroned, if we will see Christ victorious, if we will see Christ as the head of the church, then what that will do is instill a new hope in us, a new value and a new worth for us, a new wealth that we really have, and a new power to live out of. Profound difference that it could make in our lives if the Spirit of God would open up the eyes of our hearts. So um, last week we began this series in, in Ephesians and we didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about the context, about the, the, the people that Paul is writing to. So we're going to take a, a step back this morning. Um, if, uh, Acts chapter 19 is actually really helpful in helping us understand the Ephesian culture. Um, Acts 19 uh, is an incident that takes place about 12 years before Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians. He arrives in Ephesus, and as is custom, he goes to uh, the synagogues, and he begins to proclaim Jesus in the Jewish synagogues. And after about three months, they get sick of hearing him, and they kick him out. And so he walks down the street to the hall of Tyrannus, and in front of all these, these Greek pagans, he begins to proclaim Jesus. And he, he begins to tell them who Jesus is. And, and, and according to some texts, he's there for five hours a day for two years proclaiming who Jesus is. And the Spirit of God is at work in him so powerfully that the people begin to, to, to change and they begin to, to, to embrace Jesus. And, and, and Paul is healing people and he's casting out demons because there's so much demonic oppression because of the occult practices of the, of the Ephesian people that, that it's just so thick and ripe with, with, with powers and principalities. And, and Paul is at work and, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's casting out demons. And so one day, like these people who have, who have converted to Christ, they've come to Jesus, they come and they bring all of their occult books and all their occult manuals and they throw them in a heap on, and, and, and they set fire to them. And Luke tells us that, that the amount of books that were burned that day, was, the value was like 50,000 pieces of silver. Like it was a fortune. As people began to, to, to turn their back on the idols that they worshiped and turn to Jesus. See, but Paul didn't just preach Jesus, he also preached against idols. And so they turn, and, and see, the amazing thing about this is that because of this knowledge that Paul has about who Christ actually is, and because it's made such an, a profound impact and change in his own life, people are, are drawn to that, and they're changed by that. The economy of Ephesus was affected. Like, do you understand? Like, the financial economy of a great big city is affected by, by what Paul does or what the Spirit does through Paul. 
So that there's this guy named Demetrius, and he's a silversmith, and he, it's his job to make idols of, of Artemis, who is the, the, the Greek goddess of war. There's this huge temple to Artemis in, in Ephesus. That not only do they worship uh, Artemis, they worship Caesar as God. They have all these household gods. I mean, anything and everything that you can think of to pray to, they prayed to. They worshiped. They sacrificed food to. They did all sorts of things to in order to appease their gods, in order to, 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 to have hope, in order to find worth, and to, to order have wealth and power and control. Like anything and everything you could think of, that's what the Ephesians worshiped. And so there's this Demetrius, and, and it's his job to make idols that people buy. It's his livelihood, and he's losing money. And so he gathers a bunch of, of people together, and he basically says, this guy, Paul, he is turning our world upside down. And so we see in uh, chapter 19, beginning in verse 26, and it says, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, because they would have killed him. See, what happens when you speak against the thing that people worship is they get really mad. And this is what's happening here is that, that there is a mob forming. There is a riot that is beginning to happen. And they are grabbing people off the street and they're dragging them into this theater. And if Paul would have gone in there, they would have torn him apart because he proclaimed the truth. that Their idols were not gods. They were angry at that. So we see that the Ephesians have so much in common with us. That was a culture that worshipped anything and everything, just like ours. We are idolaters and worshippers, and we would deny that fact. We would say we are modern people. We do not worship wood and, and stones and, and metal. We, we don't worship that kind of stuff. No, but we worship idols just the same. The difference is, is that the Ephesians were self-aware enough to, to know at least the Ephesians were honest about the things that they worshipped. At least the Ephesians could point to something and say, that's my God. That's what I worship. That's what I put my hope in. That's what I put my trust in. That, that's what's going to save me. That's what's going to help me. That's what's going to make me rich. At least they had enough honesty to point to what it is they worship and call it worship. Where we just lie to ourselves about that. And the truth is, is we are spending our lives putting our hope in all sorts of things. We are putting our value in all sorts of things, our worth, entrusting it to all sorts of things, including other people. Where we are looking to get our wealth from, where, where, we, where are we looking to get our, our power and control from? We look to all sorts of things. But here's the thing. Not only did Paul preach Christ, he preached against idolatry, because you can't have two masters. You can't have two masters. And the reality is, is, if you're looking for a career to save your life, you're not worshiping Jesus. If you're looking to your role in parenting to justify your existence, you're not worshiping Jesus. 
If you're looking for human relationships to fill your need for acceptance, then you're not worshiping Jesus. If you're looking to your spouse to be your God of protection, safety, assurance, fulfillment, satisfaction, whatever, you're not worshiping Jesus. It's Valentine's Day, so this is the one I'm going to pick on. That it is, it is very easy and possible, if you have a good marriage, to take your spouse and worship them like an idol. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, you want the God you worship to be with you in the depths of your despair. You know, the reality is if, if, if you're married, there's going to come a day when one of you is looking at the other lying in a coffin. And in that moment, will you see the God that you've put your hope in lying there? Will you see the God that that is giving you value and worth lying there? Will you see the God that's provided for your, your wealth lying there? Will you see the, the God uh, the, of your power and your control lying in a casket? You see, if your God is lying there dead, what, where, where will that leave you? It will leave you completely crushed. See, that's what idolatry does. It crushes you. Because the idols that we make can never complete what we need them to complete in us. We either crush them or they crush us under the weight of that burden that we place on them. And there is only one that can stand up underneath that. So Paul preaches Jesus and he preaches against idolatry. The thing that we also need to be aware of is that, that behind idolatry there are principalities and powers. That, that we have an enemy who is good at identifying good things in your life and elevating them in your heart to ultimate things so that they have power and control over you and so that they take your first love away from Christ. Paul writes Later on in Ephesians, in Ephesians 6, 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And later on, when we get to this, this passage, we're going to talk about the, the tools that, that God has given us in order to fight this enemy that we have. But I want to say from the beginning that, that those are battles to be fought. The war is actually already won. And right here in chapter 1, what Paul is saying is he's saying, I want the Spirit of God to open the eyes of your heart to see Christ as he actually is in this very moment, to see him resurrected and enthroned and in victory and in the head of, of the church. I want you to see Christ as he actually is right now because that will change everything for you. Look at verse 17 in chapter 1. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your, your hearts enlightened. Where does wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him come from? If you have the ESV in front of you, you'll see that the word spirit is capitalized. It's a proper noun. It's a name. It's the third person of the Trinity. It's the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's God the Spirit who imparts this wisdom and this knowledge to us. 
If you have another translation where, where spirit isn't capitalized, that's because in the Greek there's not a, a, a definite article in front of it. And so it's just a, riddle, a literal translation. But what the Bible is implying by its context is that this is the spirit of God who awakens us and gives us this knowledge. For more on that, uh, you can see Luke 24, um, Acts 16, Psalm 119, 2 Corinthians 4. We don't have time to jump into all of those today. But Spurgeon, he said that it's easier to teach a tiger vegetarianism than an unregenerate person the gospel. What he meant by that was that the truth of who God is, the revelation of who God is, comes from God himself. And so that's why Paul prays this intercessory prayer that the Spirit would get involved and show us the truth of who Jesus is. So a spiritual enlightenment, it comes from the Spirit of God. It opens our eyes to what we should see. And, it, and what would we see? We'll see Christ resurrected, Christ enthroned, Christ victorious, and Christ as head. Let's start with resurrection first. Halfway through verse 19, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You know, to Paul's first century audience, resurrection from the dead was preposterous. Inconceivable. Uh, Paul, earlier on in Acts, he goes into Athens in this, this place called the Areopagus. He gets up in front of all these Greek philosophers and these Greek knowledgeable people, and he begins to tell them about Jesus. And they're tracking with him. They're following with him. And they're, they're nodding their heads and like, this is good stuff. And then all of a sudden, Paul gets to the, to the point where Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead. And at that, they were like, nope, ridiculous. They walked away. When you live in a culture where death is everywhere, and you've experienced death over and over and over, and you've never seen anybody come back from it, resurrection from the death is ridiculous. We have a different problem that faces our culture when it, when it comes to Christ's resurrection. And, and that is, is our culture lives in a very unique point in time where we are very isolated and removed from death. We are very unfamiliar with it. I want you just to think about this. Up until about 1950, even in the United States, the, the mortality rate of infants was 27%, meaning roughly one in four babies born before 1950 died, before they reached age one. Before 1950, 47% didn't reach puberty. Almost half children born, even in the United States, when you think about the time in which we were living, most of human history, death and famine and disease, war. A while back, I had an appendicitis. Went into the hospital, next day came about, a couple ounces lighter. Super easy. Melissa's great-grandfather died of an appendicitis. Like the time in which we were living, we, we, we're, we're, we don't see death as much. I'm not saying we don't. But, but see, here's, here's part of that too, is that because we don't experience death that much, when you have experienced the death, especially if you're, you're a parent who's lost a child, you feel so completely isolated and alone because nobody knows what you're going through. Death has been so removed from most people. It's the reality of things. And, and more than that, like there was a time when, when you saw people die. Like they didn't die in a nursing home. They didn't die in the hospital. They died at home. They died there in your midst. Children saw this. They were exposed to it. 
They were there when they, when they laid out the body and they, they prepared it for viewing or prepared it for the wake or prepared it for the burial. Like children were involved in it. These days, you don't even take kids to funerals anymore. We have to shield that from them. So isolated from death. And so the reality is, is when we're confronted with death, it scares us to death. It freaks us out. Death becomes a God to us. It becomes something that we fear. We are so afraid of it. And so we give it more power than it deserves. But, but worse than fearing death, what it's caused us to do is fear life. I, I want you to look at what Paul writes in Philippians 1. Verse 20, he says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. You see, Paul had an understanding of a resurrected Christ and that changed how he lived his life, that he could live in complete and utter abandon, that there's a guy who suffered snake bites and shipwrecks and beatings and he was stoned and he was humiliated constantly. Here is Paul and he is going with full tilt, full courage, unashamed, unabashed, living for Jesus Christ every day of his life because he had a view of the resurrected Christ. Second part of that, Christ's enthronement. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Where is Jesus now? See, so many of us, we, we have this picture of Christ in our mind of of this, this lowly carpenter and he's washing feet and, uh, and, and he's getting beaten and, and he's a lamb on a cross bleeding and dying. That's, that's the picture that we have of Jesus and that is his past. It's not how he is now. Do you know where Jesus is now? You see, the resurrection is not the end of the gospel story. The gospel story is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created everything good. God created, and in the middle of his creation, he created humanity, our first parents, Adam and Eve, and he created them in the image of God, and he created them to bear his image and to reflect to creation accurately what he is like in all of his goodness. But there was an enemy, an angel who decided he wanted to place his throne above the throne of God's. And he was, he lost. He was kicked out. He was removed. But he then targets our first parents and tries to convince them to believe the same lie, that they also could have a throne that, that was out from under the reign and the rule of God. And that's what our first parents believed, and that's what they did. And they rejected God. They disobeyed him. And the result of that is that they disconnected from the author of life and light and love. And sin and death became a part of their reality and our reality. 
Sin and death reigned and ruled until just at the right time the Son of God takes on flesh and he's born as we were born and he lives as we live, only holy and righteous and perfect. In order to take that life and to sacrifice it on the cross for our sake, and in the, in the cross, the, the wrath of God is, is assuaged. And, and he makes this great exchange where he gives us his righteousness and he takes away our sin. And sin at his death is removed. And in the resurrection, death itself is removed. But the gospel story doesn't end with the resurrection. It continues. He is ascended and he sits at the right hand of God right now. And every name is beneath him. Every ruler, every authority, every power is beneath him. He is Lord of all. You see, that's what Satan wanted. And that's what our first parents wanted. And that's ultimately what we want, is that throne. But this throne is given to Christ because he obeyed the Father. He laid down his life. And because of that, the Father glorified him. And right now, we have an advocate with the Father who is speaking to God on our behalf, pleading our case and our cause. That's who Christ is now. Imagine what difference it could make if you could see Jesus not as the suffering servant anymore, but to see him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Thirdly, see him as Christ victorious. Verse 22 says, and he put all things under his feet. This is symbolic imagery when when there was a time of, of, of kings conquering other kingdoms and the conquering king would take the conquered king and bring him into his throne room and literally put his feet on him. Literally use him as a footstool. Literally. All things under his feet. But what Paul is saying here is that Christ is victorious. Christ has won. He's defeated sin. He's defeated death. He has defeated Satan. The war is actually won. We actually know the outcome of what's going to happen. It's over. Jesus is victorious. What difference would it make is if, if, if we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, could have our eyes open to see a victorious Christ? Lastly, to see him as the head of the church. Continuing verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What we have to appreciate about God's plan of redemption is that it involves us that those who have been saved by his grace and mercy are then employed by his grace and mercy to go. And we are part of this new living community of people of which he is the head and he fills us with, with power and with life. And the church has been going for some time now and the gates of hell have not prevailed against it. And even though you might see some negative things about the church, you can know that she's still being refined and she's not perfect yet, but she's being made perfect. This is what we have if Christ would be the head of the church. But instead, we foolishly placed men and women at the head of the church. We put people like me at the head of the church. We've idolized them. We've made gods of them. And remember, idolatry crushes. It crushes them, and it crushes us. What if we saw Jesus as the head of the church? What if Jesus was our senior pastor what if Jesus was the one that was leading new community? What if we saw that? So what will happen if we see all these things? What will seeing Christ resurrected, Christ enthroned, Christ victorious, and Christ as head do for us? Well, it will change our hope. It will change our worth and our wealth and our strength. That's what Paul says 
that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? Beginning with hope. That you may know what is the hope. You see, if, if we could see Christ as resurrected, that would give us a new hope in a new life empowered by that hope. To see Christ as resurrected, to know that death is not the answer for us. To see Christ resurrected means you now have the ability to live life with complete abandonment for him. To go full tilt for him. To not hold anything back. To see Christ as resurrected. It's hopeful. To see Christ enthroned. I mean, so many Christians are devastated by this last election. Why? Because they can't see the King of Kings still sitting on the throne afterwards. They can't see the Lord of Lords. They can't see that all powers, all rulers, and all names are, are beneath Jesus. That he's still in charge. The hope that, that lies in that. The hope that Christ is victorious. Do you realize that, that Satan, the accuser, he has nothing to stand on to accuse you anymore? That because of Christ, he is your righteousness. That, that, that Satan can't accuse you before God. There is now no condemnation for you. What hope is there when you see that, that Christ is victorious and when you see him as the head, the one who's in charge of the church, that, that this thing is still going and growing and, and nothing can stop it, that you get to be a part of the greatest movement that's ever taken place on the face of the earth. There's hope in that. But secondly, that we may know the riches of his glorious grace, that we would know our worth and our wealth. Um, when it comes to this phrase, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance? Um, scholars actually disagree about how it's applied. Some scholars come down on the side that says that we are God's inheritance. And some come down on the other side that says that in God we have an inheritance. And the reality is, is that there's biblical grounds for both. So on the one hand, if we are God's inheritance, if he looks at us and, and he sees us as, as something good that he gets to have as a result of Christ's work for us, then you need to know that means value and worth, that you are valuable and, and, and full of worth to God. Your acceptance shouldn't come from anybody less than God. And to him, you are valued and you are full of of worth, and it's not because of what you've done. And praise God for that, because it's based on what you've done, you're going to blow it. But it's based on what has been done for you by Christ. And that's where your value and your worth comes from. On the other side of that, though, we do get to have an inheritance, and that's biblical as well. That because of Christ, we get to have this spiritual wealth that is unimaginable to us. An eternal life and a life of holiness and blameless and, and perfection, the life that we were always meant to be lived, and we can't even fathom what that is. But it's lavished upon us because of the generosity of God's grace in Jesus Christ towards us. You see, we have worth and we have wealth. Lastly, we have power. That you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The Spirit of God lives in you. 
This God that, that opens your eyes, the, that the eyes of your heart to see Christ lives in you. The power to overcome sin lives in you. The power to turn to Jesus lives in you. The, the, the power that Christ has given you is growing in you as he sanctifies you and moves you towards perfect restoration. The power of God is at work in us. And so we, we, we can't live lives of, uh, of retreat. We can't live lives of powerlessness. We can't live lives of, uh, of just allowing things to happen to us. Like because of who Christ is, if we will see him accurately for his, can you imagine what that would do to our world? See, we get a glimpse of it back in Acts 19. So here's this guy, Paul, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he sees Christ resurrected, enthroned, victorious, the head. He sees Christ that way, and as a result of, of that understanding of who Jesus is, he's full of hope and worth and wealth and power, and he lives his life out of that, and he, and he lives his life with complete abandon. And so what happens is that he proclaims Jesus everywhere he goes with such power and with such conviction, and that people turn away from their idols, and they believe to, to such an extent that it destroys the Ephesian economy. Will you think about that? That if the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to see Christ in that way, to destroy the economy of our enemy. Can you imagine that? That drug dealers go bankrupt because of the power of Christ in us and, and their addicts are turning to Jesus instead of to, to drugs. The, 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 the porn industry would go bankrupt because people would stop feeding their addictions and would turn to Jesus. The Planned Parenthood would go bankrupt because the power of Christ in us is revealed so that, that the people, these young men and these young women, they, they would have the help they need, the, the financial help, the support they need, that, that they would turn to Christ instead of turning to that. The corrupt politicians would be changed and they would start leading for Jesus. That banks would be bankrupted. That this whole society that we have built around consumerism and the, and the idols of, of, of one-upping our neighbor with the stuff that we've got, that if we would turn away from consumerism and embrace Christ and abolish debt. Like, can you imagine, like, if we were willing to pray simply, open the eyes of my heart to see the truth of who Christ is. We are always asking the four questions. Who is God and what has he done? Because it's out of those two questions that changes everything for us. Out of who is Jesus and what has he done, it changes everything for us. And where it begins, it's just a simple prayer. Where it begins is simply praying, Spirit of God living in me, open the eyes of my heart to see my Christ resurrected, enthroned, victorious in the head. Give me the eyes to see Christ where he actually is. There are some things that when you see them, you can never look away. There are some things when you experience them, you can never be the same again. You can never unexperience them. You better believe that Jesus is one of them. Let's pray.
Holy Spirit. I pray for all of us that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would give us wisdom and knowledge and insight, that you would help us to see the truth, help us to see what really is, help us to see your son, help us to see Jesus resurrected and enthroned and victorious as the head of the church. And I pray that that knowledge would just ruin us for anything less. Holy Spirit, if you would pour out that power on us so that it actually makes a difference in the physical world around us. Holy Father, thank you for your son and the work you accomplished through him. Lord Jesus, Thank you for your sacrifice. And you are worthy of all glory and all honor and all power. In your name we pray. Amen.